This summer, we visited a fourth-generation farm in Nebraska where a grower said, ask 10 different farmers what sustainability means to them, and you'll get 10 different answers. And each of them will be right. So while everyone's definition of sustainability may differ, the indicators for healthy soil, clean air, and improved water quality also contribute to a more productive crop. Agronomists and farmers know that nutrient management strategies cannot be prescribed as an industry-wide standard. Practices and tools perform differently based on weather patterns and soil type, field by field, and if managed closely, inch by inch. However, testing new methods and technologies allows for adaptive management that improves efficiency through research, on-farm trials, regional feedback, and replicated data. With each proven practice, farmers are improving their land to grow more resilient crops. In this episode, we feature soil health experts, a farmer the EDF has named the whiz kid of sustainable agriculture, and the California Secretary of Food and Agriculture. Groundswell, a podcast brought to you by Groundwork.ag to help you dig deeper into the science of farming. Data will be presented, ideas will be developed, stories will be shared. It's agronomics from a different point of view. Karen Ross, Secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, leads her post with a think global, act local mentality. Secretary Ross was previously Secretary of Staff for the U.S. Agricultural Secretary, Tom Vilsack, and before that, she was President of the California Association of Wine Grape Growers. Many farmers across the country, and especially in California, are looking to her guidance for what is coming down the pipe in ag policy. Well, Karen, um, we heard you speak recently at the Soil Health Institute's annual meeting, and you talked a lot about the disconnect between the farmer, the consumer, and food suppliers. Uh, I was wondering if you could just give us a little bit more perspective about that. Yeah, what I have observed over the years as fewer and fewer people are in farming, um, that our food system doesn't necessarily stay connected as a system, and many decisions are made perhaps in a boardroom, um, without taking into account the practicalities of what that decision might mean on the production side on the farm, um, and vice versa. Um, it's also important for us who are growing the products to have better information about what consumers are looking for um, and, and the values that they're expressing. You know, the retailer's kind of caught in the middle, food service is caught in the middle. I would love for there to be a stronger foundation of ag literacy throughout the country because so many people depend on what just a few people do, which is to farm, take care of our lands, produce food, and many other public goods and the environmental services that people are expecting, but they have no clue um, what that means on the ground for a farmer in their daily life. You know, our experience across about the farming industry is so few people have actually ever been on a farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they really have no idea um, how food's developed and uh, the cost and the risk that a farmer goes through every year, uh, plus the, in, the, in the processing side, the risk that goes there. And, I, you know, I think it's a, a lot of, like a lot of things, if you've never been to a grocery store where there's no food available, then you just take for granted that things just appear on the, on the shelf. Yes. As Americans, we're so lucky because the food is there. There's a multiple choices of what we want, the diversity of what's available. I like to tell people we can match your palate and your pocketbook. (laughs) And that choice is a very important American value. We should be very proud of what um, happens on our farm and ranch land across the country. We're blessed with the climate and the soils and the innovative farmers and ranchers 
to really optimize what we have here. And, and we want to we wanna make sure that continues for many, many generations. Can you explain uh, what policy you're helping to shape to advocate uh, on behalf of the grower? Well, I'm very mindful that I'm part of government, and we're here to serve all people and, and to balance all of our decisions, um, keeping in mind producers and consumers and buyers and all those multitude of stakeholders who are involved in our public policy process. But we do work very hard um, to be as transparent and as inclusive on all of the policies that we have. For example, we run um, a multitude of um, pest detection and eradication programs. California has so many ports of entry. 50% of the products come into our ports are headed for other states. And so oftentimes, we're the, the battleground for invasive pests that the rest of the country doesn't want to have. We also um, in particular, for some of the specific programs, we have a fertilizer research and education program where we're really working closely with the farm community and with the regulators at the state water board to continuously improve nutrient management. We've invested millions of dollars in research projects and education and outreach programs to really help our farmers not only improve their nutrient management, but it makes them more efficient and hopefully helps their bottom line as well. We are at the table on many of the decisions that are made outside of our agency to be able to bring our agronomic expertise to water quality regulators, to air regulators, to pesticide regulators. Uh, Many of those programs we don't have in our agency like they do in other states. So we have to be very um, vigilant and try to engage in their regulatory process as early as we can so that we can better inform what their ultimate decision is going to be. If you look back at kind of the the, the partnership or, or the relationship between the farmer and and um, and the uh, and the ag environment and ag regulation, um, has it changed over the last ten years from kind of us versus them to more of a partnership, or do you feel like it's it's kind of about the same that it's been? <laughs> well, we certainly have outstanding examples of collaboration that has happened in the last decade, but I do want to remind folks. California is unique. Uh, We're a very large state. We have some of the most spectacular natural resources in the world. We are also home to the number one ag production state, and we are home to the most people. We have almost 40 million Californians, and we have less than 78,000 farms. So a lot of what has driven our change is just the urbanization of our state and the urbanization of elected officials driving the policies that are made here. Many mature environmental organizations have recognized that to get the best environmental benefits, they need to work with landowners and land managers because so much of what can happen to benefit the environment is happening on private lands. So we have a number of organizations that have partnered with the rice industry, for example, to really look at our rice fields as man-made wetlands in the wintertime, which helps um, the bird population in the Pacific Flyway. We have Sustainable Conservation as an organization that's partnered with our dairy farmers to really improve um, how they're managing the, the byproduct of their cows. <laughs> um, the Nature Conservancy and Environmental Defense have worked with a number of wine grape growers and others on creating habitat on working landscapes. So we have examples of collaboration, but it still gets too easily pitted um, as an urban versus rural, environmentalist versus farmer. 
um, and we need more voices to help us identify our commonalities and work on our shared goals together. I agree. We say often, you know, farmers are the original conservationists, um, particularly with uh, the number of generational farmers that are out there uh, as they hand land down to the to generation after generation. How are you looking at, at on-farm data and, and the science and research and being able to provide that to, to farmers and ranchers today in California? Well, I think it's obviously an important um, piece of using information and how do we take all that big data and translate it down to something that's practical and useful for a farmer to make real-time management decisions. We have so much data, it can be overwhelming, or there's, there's not a way to integrate it all into what a farmer could use on their handheld or iPad and their pickup truck, especially in too many of our areas. Many people are surprised that California has issues um, with connectivity, as we have in many other rural communities across the country. The farmers are looking for something that integrates it all into one place so they can make a real-time management decision with the best available information. And I think that's one of the big challenges right now is how do we pull it all together um, in, in an integrated kind of way to make that real-time kind of information and that translation piece of that. I know there are many companies working on it, and there's a lot of promise there. Um, and I think that that's what's really um, keeping a lot of young people very excited about agriculture is, is that particular piece and the ability to use that to be as efficient as possible um, and as precise in all of our management decisions as we possibly can be. I think it's a huge piece of the future of farming. I think if you look at the the numbers and the growth in population and the fact that you know, the, from the UN standpoint, there's already 750 to 800 million people around the world every day that go hungry and 300 million at starvation level. And you add another two, two and a half billion on top of that, farmers are going to have to be uh, more precise. You're going to have to get more, more out of every single acre, uh, actually out of every single square foot almost in California uh, of land. So I think that's going to be very important. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big challenge, a good opportunity, right? Yes. Yeah. So recently you launched uh, your Healthy Soils Incentive Program. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us more about uh, how that will be implemented and what you hope to get out of this program? Sure. Our Healthy Soils Program is part of California's climate change strategy, um, which incorporates natural working landscapes, land management, and the decisions that are made that can actually store carbon. We're really focused on um, incentivizing those practices that will help farmers build up their soil organic matter, not only to store carbon, which will help us on our climate change battle, but equally important is um, the ability to retain water. We know what a difference that can make, and since we've just come through an almost six-year drought, we're very mindful of any tool that will allow us to optimize every drop of water that we have and how we store that in our soils. And so, uh, initially, we've looked at those practices that align with the Natural Resource Conservation Service's technical guidelines. Um, thankfully, at USDA, they've developed some great tools. We're using Comet Planner and have been able to add a tool to easily calculate what your greenhouse gas emission reductions will be from practices like cover crop, low till, minimal till, um, adding compost and mulch. Um, those are the initial practices that are included. Um, we have about $7.5 million that are available for on-farm cost-share incentives as well as demonstration projects where we can really try to scale up the adoption of the practices that we know that will work. 
So we're very excited about just the level of interest and enthusiasm we've seen from a broad set of stakeholders that are really engaged with what is happening on the land to really help us with our climate change battles. So your your view on the industry, uh, really the ag industry as well, is it, it will be as motivated to hit some of these aggressive goals uh, that we've set in nutrient and greenhouse gas reduction. Sure, I I just think that uh, as the interest in food and the food system itself is being challenged to re-examine. Um, its practices and the state of the best management practices, we've seen changes happening that are driven more in the marketplace than they are by regulations. Government as a function moves fairly slowly and it tends to be very reactionary. And the good news is that it is very deliberative when it comes to the regulatory part that implements the public policy. Um, And so I've, I've seen changes move much more swiftly that are the result of the marketplace driving change. And if you look at just using the the Paris Agreement as an example, that was driven as much by the business community, um, especially those that are operating on an international basis and concerned about their ability to source um, on multiple continents. Um, That was driven as much by the business community and the UN as it was by any particular um, national government. We've also seen, because of Governor Brown's leadership with over 190 subnational cities, provinces, um, and states, um, the desire to join together to learn from one another um, to address climate change. So some of these changes are just going to happen without the heavy hand of government. Um, And so we just have to continue to be engaged and really uh, rely on our investment in research and the ability to extend those research results to the end user as quickly as possible, which will continually create innovation on our farms and ranches, and we see that every day. The more proactive the industry can be to solve these problems in partnership, then that's is much better always to be than a reactive, uh, <laughs> a reactive solution. Yeah, eating food is a very it's a personal, intimate relationship, and we load a lot of values onto. Our food, right. <laughs> um, and eating is a partnership. We should not put all of that burden on the on the shoulders of the farmers. We need to share in that with rational public policy. We need to share in that with with um, um, helping to pay for that, whether it's in the marketplace with incentives like we're doing in marketplace cap and trade programs or whatever it is. But eating is a partnership, and we shouldn't just point fingers at a farmer and load everything that we expect out of our purchase of food um, onto the arms of the farmer. We are all in this together. Uh, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, Karen, I, look, I, I, I really appreciate you spending time with us uh, today and, and sharing your thoughts and, and uh, certainly appreciate the work that you're doing from a partnership standpoint with uh, both the farming community, the production community, and, and the consumer. I'm very lucky to have the job that I have. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you very much for the difference you're making. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Karen. Such a fantastic conversation today. To learn more about Secretary Ross and her work in California, visit cdfa.ca.gov.
Amy Wu, a senior government and agriculture reporter for The Californian, is passionate about stories that connect agriculture, sustainability, and technology to farmers in the Central Valley and beyond. Amy has more than 25 years of experience as a journalist in a variety of business and tech sectors. Well, first, thanks so much for joining us. I know you, you cover stories that go across the U.S., but you spend a lot of time in California, specifically on the California ag industry, which is probably the most diverse ag industry and in, maybe in the world, but certainly in the United States, from trees, fruit, nuts, vegetables, to dairy, and everything in between. Can you talk about any trends you're seeing as a member of the media in regards to particularly just sustainability message in California and where it might differ from the rest of the country? Well, yes. First of all, California, you know, ag is, as you said, is tremendous here. The state grows most of the fruits and vegetables and is a huge exporter to countries like China even now. So here in the Salinas Valley, where I'm based, it's like a $9 billion industry, and the city itself is called the salad bowl of the world. So there's a couple of fascinating themes and strands, I think, related to sustainability that are emerging here. First of all, there's this rapid development of ag tech which is still, you know, small. I mean, I meet a lot of people like ag tech, what's that? But it's the merging of technology and agriculture and sort of the use of technology to help farmers be more efficient, save money, essentially work smarter. So that's one trend I'm seeing. And how does this relate to sustainability is like, I think they're just, they're trying to find technologies, whether it be software or hardware, to help farmers work smarter and tackle problems that they're facing, including labor shortage, severe labor shortage, and also water and land limitations as well. So that's one area I'm seeing. You're close to Silicon Valley. And I was out last year at the Forbes Ag Tech Summit in, um, uh-huh. in Salinas. And I was amazed at the amount of technology and startup companies were there. And so one of the speakers said, ag is sexy now. And uh, I said, yeah. <laughs> "I said, you know, ag's, <laughs> ag's always been sexy because it feeds the world. So well, yeah, it's funny. I've heard that theme as people say that as well. Like ag is sexy now. I think there's something to be said about that, though, because there's this increasing connection now with ag tech, with technology, innovation, creativity, but also this theme of sustainable and green, this idea of uh, from the consumer end of things, sort of the farm-to-table movement. There's a lot of now grow local, eat local, buy local, and increasingly a movement with an interest in organic, too. So maybe it's being better marketed, perhaps. (laughs) I mean, with events like Forbes Summit and also with like this tie-in with restaurants and green and sustainability, I think there's now more of a connect the dots with the different elements, perhaps. So you spend a lot of time, obviously, talking to a lot of different people in the industry and consumers as well. But the word sustainable means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. What's your experience with Mm -hmm. that as well? Yeah, the word sustainable is pretty broad. I mean, in general, from what I understand, it's using techniques, farming techniques that overall uh, protect the environment, communities, um, animal welfare, and public health. So that's from talking with the different growers and farmers in this area, certainly. Mm -hmm. Water and water quality and water availability certainly is an issue that uh, has shaped a lot of California ag policy over the last hundred years, but certainly over the last six years with the drought and now, you know, a relief from drought. So when we think about sustainability, we think, you know, from an industry standpoint, we also always have to talk about water. And as you said, from the very beginning, you know, farmers, whether you're in India or China or whether you're in in central Iowa or California, the first thing they talk about is availability of labor uh, Mm -hmm. and labor cost. And then the next is usually something about water uh, and water availability too. There's a lot of interesting pieces to this, especially when you consider that the world's going to have to feed two and a half billion more people by 2050. 
Oh, absolutely. That's a, that's a really good point, an important point. I mean, another aspect here within, I'm not sure if it ties directly with sustainability, but here in California, within the ag community, there's a lot of talk now about the uh, cannabis industry, the medical marijuana industry, and it's now uh, legalized here, you know, Monterey County, for example, and also in cities like Salinas. So there's just the issue of water again, you know, it's like there's limited water that can go around. And some growers are just kind of concerned about how much that's going to take up. That also ties into the labor discussion as well, you know, as potential growers for cannabis are looking for laborers also. You know, a lot of the community here is just concerned about the severe labor shortage. A lot of the workers are getting older. And honestly, this is probably a global story. I mean, I think it's happening everywhere. I've spoken with farmers in Taiwan, too, or other in India, and they're saying the same thing. No, absolutely. So I, I know just by the short time we spent together, you're, you're clearly passionate about technology and you're right in the center of, as we talked about, the spoke of technology coming in. And you're seeing a lot of interest from the networks around big data and data and science. Is there any particular innovations you've seen from the ag tech side that really excite you in what you've been covering? Yeah. Here in Salinas Valley, the Western Growers is actually based out here right inside the Taylor Building. And there's a incubator called the Center for Innovation Technology that opened in December 2015. And um, what's exciting about it is they started out with like a handful of startups, and now there's 45 of them. And they're they're from all over the world. They're from like Ireland, Israel, New Zealand, um, China, um, a lot from Silicon Valley as well. A few of them, I mean, I think are pretty exciting. I've had a chance to meet the CEOs there, but we've got like Trace Genomics. They're two smart young women who have PhDs from Stanford. Diane Wu and Purnima Parameswaran, they have invented this a soil test that produces a report that allows farmers to easily see if their soil contains any like bacteria or crop-killing pathogens. And they recently were on the Forbes list, top innovators under 30. <laughs> then you've got startups like even like cattle ranching, I mean like pasture management, like Pasture Map, started by Christine Sue, another Stanford alum, and basically telling cattle ranchers the quality and quantity of the grass. Mm-hmm. that the cattle are grazing on. So the list goes on and on, actually. I think the possibilities are um, endless. It's just a matter of seeing whether or not the growers and the startup companies come together and actually use this or maybe even beta test this. I think there's a lot of patience and also time involved. And I think there's still a lot of maybe work to be done between seeing if farmers will adopt these technologies. Yeah, I know. I think one of the challenges, and certainly it's different from the vegetable side, but fruit trees take five to seven years to be completely productive and broad acre crops are usually a once a year type phenomenon. When you talk about five, mm-hmm. you talk about five to seven years of yeah. innovation and testing, that's, I mean, five to seven times of innovation and testing is five to seven years, which is a long time in a world right. that wants a new iPod or, I, or an iPhone every, <laughs> every six months. So, I mean, absolutely, because uh, a lot of these startups and companies need venture capital and venture capitalists by nature are kind of like, well, show me your next unicorn quickly right. <laughs> <laughs> and show me the, the money, you know, right. exactly. the return on investment quickly. Yeah. Well, and I think you hit on it because having two daughters in college, I uh, was interested in your view on women in science and technology, particularly uh, in the field of agriculture, because I know you're passionate about that. I think you hit on three or four in your startup, but any other advice you can give to uh, to women coming into the ag side as you observe it and, and experience it? Yeah, um, in the STEM area, science, technology, engineering, math, there are a growing number of women in that area. And it happens to be in the area of ag tech that some of these women who have amazing backgrounds as PhD scientists, biologists, and so forth, they decided they had this 
creative, innovative streak about them and decided to just jump in and start their own companies or maybe join other companies to develop technologies and innovation. Others have decided to do their own ventures. I think what's going to help get more women in this area is just by telling the stories of the women doing this Mm -hmm. and their own stories of their products, of their challenges, of how they're getting money. And I think it's just getting their stories out there so maybe younger women can have access and hear their stories and be inspired by that. I think there's also the component of like networking and mentorship. There are organizations in Silicon Valley and also here in Salinas Valley, you know, women in ag organizations um, around the state where there's lots of opportunities for women to mentor maybe younger women who are interested in this. So uh, there's lots happening in the area that I think is positive, but um, of course, there's still a lot of work to be done there. Yeah, I know. I think there's a tremendous opportunity to, to continue to increase the diversity and then to get the just the message out in general about agriculture and everybody that goes into a grocery store that buys something and eats something, they understand that the need for agriculture. But I think people all over the world, whether you're in the medical field or whatever field you're in, you're looking for something that has a purpose and a value. And I can't personally think of another thing that has more value than uh, being part of helping feed the world, not just this generation, but the future generations. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think women make a lot of decisions in terms of just even their households, like shopping or cooking. And I think um, now it's shifting a little bit when you see women now kind of taking on the role of now um, creating companies and things that are related now to food and sustainability and greens. My own forecast and prediction is there is going to be more of that, although it's going to take time, maybe a generation or so, to reach a whole different uh, stage. Yeah. Well, Amy, I I really appreciate you spending some time with us uh, today and and getting your thoughts and views. And I think there is a a great story to be told on a lot of different fronts about agriculture. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it leaves a lot of opportunity and I think potential, a lot of possibilities out there for a generation of folks who are both interested in, in food and technology and innovation. Yeah. And we appreciate all the work that you do covering it and creating as much exposure as you can about, about agriculture. So thank you very much, Amy. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. Have a good day. Thanks, Amy, for sharing how ag tech is evolving around sustainability. Read what Amy's writing these days over at thecalifornian.com. Innovative farmers don't follow agronomic trends. They set them. So as an innovator, you need a resource that takes an in-depth, science-based look at crop health, nutrient use efficiency, and water quality. Groundwork.ag is the only place for retail agronomists and their farmer customers to explore data, to share ideas, and also stories that are shared by experts in the field. Start your exploration today at groundwork.ag. I'm Steve Kozell, and I'm an account planner at Osborne Bar. We partner with Verdesian on this primary research initiative in order to get a better understanding of how growers viewed the concepts of sustainable agriculture and nutrient stewardship and how their views might differ from retail staff, agronomists, and PCAs. We surveyed 420 growers in Iowa, Nebraska, and California. We also surveyed 111 retail staff, agronomists, and PCAs from all three states, which included managers and agronomy sales reps, staff agronomists, Uh, crop specialists, seed specialists, soil specialists, precision ag specialists, PCAs, and independent consultants. One of the first things we wanted to know was how familiar these growers were with the concepts of sustainable agriculture and nutrient stewardship, and what percentage consider themselves practicing one or both. We found that one out of four growers surveyed consider themselves very familiar with the concepts 
about half were somewhat familiar, one out of five were not very familiar, and one in 20 indicated that they had never heard of the concepts before. So we wanted to know how many of these growers believed they're actually practicing sustainable agriculture or nutrient stewardship. Nine out of 10 consider themselves to be practicing one or both. 89% say they practice sustainable agriculture. 95% claim to practice nutrient stewardship, including 99% of the Iowa growers. And 83% of the one in five who were not very familiar with the concepts still consider themselves practicing. Next, we wanted to get a sense as to whether or not growers viewed these concepts positively. What we found was that the majority of the growers we surveyed viewed nutrient stewardship and sustainable agriculture as both proven and realistic. So while 35% did associate the concepts with unproven complications and 30% felt they represented unrealistic ideals, 81% viewed them as necessary efforts. The growers we surveyed were more likely to associate sustainable agriculture and or nutrient stewardship with themes of environmental preservation, preventing nutrient loss, than they were with themes of maintaining profitability or consumer marketing. Surprisingly, only 58% of the growers we surveyed associated nutrient stewardship with practicing the four R's, despite the fact that 90% of them indicated that they themselves practiced the four R's. So for those growers who consider themselves practicing, we wanted to know what made them start in the first place. And what we found was that the growers surveyed were most compelled by improving their long-term soil health and protecting their investments, uh, whether that's in land and fertilizer and seed, uh, but also because they felt like it was the right thing to do. Almost all of the growers surveyed indicated practicing some form of erosion control. The growers we surveyed indicated that soil health was the issue they were most concerned with, followed by water quality and nutrient use efficiency. When thinking of soil health, the growers surveyed are focused primarily on nutrient retention, uh, organic matter and microbial activity, fertilizer needs, erosion resistance, and pH and salt levels. They weren't as focused on pest and weed resistance, chemicals or toxins, or carbon sequestration. The growers we surveyed were just as likely to be influenced by data showing profit potential as they were their agronomists or PCA at 78% each. Dealers and retailers were viewed as having an influence on practice adoption by 57% of growers, but were only trusted sources of information on sustainability and stewardship for 34%. We asked the practicing growers to estimate the implementation costs for their sustainability or stewardship practices. Uh, 61% of growers surveyed estimated those costs at $8 or less per acre. 54% of retail staff, agronomists, and PCAs estimated the upfront cost of their grower customers over the $8 per acre mark. Roughly one in four growers estimated costs between $3 and $5 per acre, and one in five of the retail staff, agronomists, and PCAs we surveyed agreed with that estimate. So we wanted to know how much profit matters when it comes to making improvements to sustainability. In other words, would growers be willing to make improvements as long as they can be confident and at least breaking even? 81% of growers said they would consider making sustainability improvements if they could expect to recoup their initial investment. For those remaining 19% of growers for whom breaking even wasn't enough, 58% indicated they would consider $8 per acre or less of profit potential. And 70% of the retail staff, agronomists, and PCAs surveyed agreed that $8 per acre of profit potential would be enough to convince most of their grower customers to make improvements. If this research shows anything, I think it shows that these growers do care about these issues. They believe in a more sustainable future for agriculture uh, and they consider themselves a part of that future. I think it clearly underscores our job as an industry, as manufacturers, as dealers and retailers, agronomists, PCAs, anyone else in between, to inform them, to encourage them, uh, and remind them of what we all need to do to get there together. 
Despite what headlines may have us believe, farmers, environmental advocates, and our country's policymakers are all finding overlap in their goals for a healthier crop production environment. At the end of the day, we all want to improve how our natural resources might be impacted by crop production. Scott Henry, an Iowa farmer and business development manager at Longview Farms, was recently dubbed Agriculture's New Whiz Kid by the Environmental Defense Fund for his work with the Four R's Program and Land and Lakes Sustain Program. Scott has been farming with his family since he was 14 years old and has three degrees, including a master's in agricultural economics from Purdue University and an MBA from the Indiana University School of Business. So, Scott, I got to ask you a question. Your nickname is the Whiz Kid, and I just can't imagine uh, how many friends that you grew up with that actually know that that's your nickname. <laughs> yeah, when they came out with that nickname, it was really, uh, I was really pleased. <laughs> I, I, I would say we're by no means a poster child for for any of this, but we do uh, care deeply about sustainability and being good stewards of the land and the assets that we have, and so. Um, it, 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 I was just glad to be a part of it. No, it's it's fantastic. And it says, uh, you know, matter, no matter the title, I guess it's uh, it's really about what you're doing and what you're accomplishing. What generation farm uh, or farmer are you? Yeah, I'd be the fourth generation involved in our family farm in central Iowa. Uh, we we operate uh, basically a 20 square mile area uh, right around Ames and. We raise commercial corn and commercial soybeans, and then probably the most uh, focused area of our business is being a seed corn production grower for uh, kind of the big multinationals, um, Pioneer, Monsanto, and AgriLiant. So that's been that's been the, the biggest thing that the generations over time have worked very hard to put together a land base and develop relationships with those, and and so I I give a lot of credit to starting with my great-grandpa for being entrepreneurial and being willing to kind of pick the family up and move them from a place where he had over 700 acres of paid-for ground in 1955 at the age of 55 and, and starting all over again in a new area. And then my grandpa, who would be the second generation of, of really getting into seed corn production with Pioneer, and then my dad over the last 20 years has worked uh, extremely hard to expand those relationships and, and bring up a value-added crop to our, our business that um, really does make some of these tighter margin years um, very much so. Uh, well, well, the, the damage, I guess, isn't as rough on us uh, in some of these tight years. And that's, uh, you know, that's the unique thing about farming. Uh, you know, over 95% of the farms in the United States are family-owned, and so many of them are third, fourth uh, generation farm farming operations. And uh, it's just amazing to hear those stories of, of how people got started and how they've gotten to where they are from farming. There's sustainability in, in the land and the soil and the, and the water, but there's also sustainability in farming and just being able to sustain an operation for that long as well. So kudos to your family for, for making that progress and, and the commitment that you have. But switching to Land Lakes and the Sustain program, how did you, how did you first get involved with that? Our local co-op has done a tremendous job of trying to encourage and educate their members and and producers in our area about the environmental impacts of different production practices and tries to bring things to them that um, maybe they haven't tried before or might have an interest in but haven't always devoted the resources to it. And so it was actually our local co-op that 
first introduced us to the sustain program in large part due to the nutrient management practices. And so um, really educating us on how uh, we can be reducing our nitrogen use and being better uh, or more efficient users of the nitrogen that we do put out in the field um, by using different stabilizers, the timing of those applications, the, the source uh, that we're using for them, and really uh, buying into the, the four R's of nutrient management um, portion of that. And, and so I think Sustain gave them just a really great platform um, to do that. And then the other piece of it uh, was on the, uh, the grain marketing side, partnering with other programs that are out there as well to, to encourage producers not only to track the the production activities that they do on their farm, but also to document and um, share those in order to capture a premium on, in this case, our soybean. So there was that was actually one of my questions, because so I, I know I see the, the Unilever ADM, Sustainable Soy Continuous Improvement Program. They Are they paying you a, a, a premium, then I assume, over just standard farming practices as a result of that? How, how that works for our operation and, and many others in our area that are taking advantage of the opportunity is we keep track of and record or or document the different practices that we use, whether it be um, minimal tillage or no-till or conventional tillage or uh, broadcast over-the-ground spraying or aerial, all different aspects of it, whether it would be categorized broadly as a conservation approach or not. And then uh, those are then calculated based off of their environmental impact. And if you score high enough or in their calculator have a score that would be in the realm of what they deem as sustainable, then you are eligible to receive a small premium on your soybeans. For us, it's typically around $0.10. Cents. So it's unfortunately, it's not enough to really change the bottom line in years like this. But at the same time, it's a really great reward for, especially for operations that are already doing those practices. It's just another kind of record-keeping aspect of it. Well, a lot of times people think of it as a trade-off. You know, if I'm going to grow sustainably, then there's a cost associated with it. How do you balance that that ROI and, and uh, when you're working through the, the income statement for the uh, for the farming operation? You bet. That, that to me, is the key to unlocking um, a higher adoption rate for farms is if we can get to a point where we can prove whether it be a year-over-year return or a long-term benefit to the practices that farmers are using in their operation. And for us, um, certain activities, I think, are easier to judge. Um, You know, the one that's top of mind, I think, is is paying attention to the nitrogen efficiency ratio and, and just understanding are there ways that we can maintain or in some cases increase yield by reducing the nitrogen that we put onto a farm. And and so that is easily done on a year-over-year calculation um, to give you a, an immediate or near-term ROI, but it also, once you've done it for several years and can compare the trend line, at that point, then you can see just where the potential is for that. Uh, in your operation and, and continuing to try and be as efficient as possible and um, as conservationally minded as possible. One area that we also are currently trying to figure out is is cover crops. And while they're, they're very popular and, and almost to a point of becoming a, another buzzword in our industry with, 
with when it comes to sustainability, they they are harder to determine what that ROI is in a near-term basis. And so it takes a multi-year commitment to trying different cropping mixes and seeing how those are impacting the fertility of the soils, what other benefits could be captured and, and a dollar value associated with them. And once we can get to that point, I think we will see not only changes happen that are environmentally focused, but also uh, the adoption rate um, increase dramatically. And I think a big key to doing that, not only is just getting people to try the practice themselves, but is also the, the changes that are coming to our industry around actually accurately capturing data from it and, and being able to analyze that and correlate it back to where are the gains coming from. And I hope, and we haven't seen it yet necessarily, but but I hope that we can get it to a point where we can show farmers that there is potential for an immediate impact to help get them to start trying things. Because I think the long-term benefits are becoming more popular or more um, public in research in universities and their extension programs as well as groups like the Environmental Defense Fund and, and initiatives that were started several years ago, such as the Lando Lakes to Spain, are now have been around long enough to where they are showing some of these long-term benefits. And so it's trying to balance that near-term economic cost to doing it with what that long-term benefit is that I think is keeping that adoption rate slightly low. But I think with the data analysis tools that we have, I'm I'm very bullish, I guess, on the, the future benefits of that. I mean, it seems like uh, your family's farm is is all in on, on this and evaluating the ROI and the trade offs and, and doing this. What advice would you have to you know farmers that are thinking about it or you know trying to decide do I stick my toe in or do I go all in? I would give farmers three three pieces of advice. Um, the first one would be to just be open to the process and try something. Um, I think if we can just remove kind of the traditionalist and closed-minded approach that we take too often in this industry, I think that there's a lot of benefits and and really neat opportunities that are just sitting there right at the the, the cusp of of breaking into us. Um, The second piece would be you have to find ways to minimize the impact for that testing period. Changing equipment or changing practices or adding cost line item like cover crops in the environment that we're in right now does not sit well and makes things difficult. And so finding the programs like um, the sustainably sourced soybeans through Unilever or even um, a, a local or a state grant or program that is doing cost sharing dollars are great ways to to at least reduce that burden in year one or at least open you up enough to be able to try it on some acres just to begin gauging impact and benefit. And then lastly, I think it comes back to, again, the generations that exist in our farming um, families. I think that there's differences in how each generation views trying new things. And some cases, the, the younger generation is very much bent towards doing things the way the older generation did. And in other cases, the older generation may limit a more creative younger generation that would like to try new things. And so I think if we can get family farms to truly 
kind of harness the potential of two generations working together, creating an experience and, and wisdom um, kind of mindset or collective that can ultimately really push some of these things to the forefront will will again increase that adoption rate, but also put some of these programs in a place where they actually have a chance of succeeding rather than just being another trial that kind of built on a bias that it will fail ultimately. And I think as an, as an industry, and, I'm, and I talk about collectively the farming industry uh, in general, but also specifically in, in our side of the business from a uh, supplier side, I mean, if you go back over the last 20 years, roughly the same amount of nitrogen that was treated 20 years ago was about 20%, and today it's about 20%. And so there's a, there's a high level of education around, around this use efficiency uh, and its impact on our waterways. And uh, farming usually is the first person that gets blamed for nitrogen runoff. And I agree with your statement of, you know, we need to be out in front of this as an industry uh, providing solutions uh, for everybody versus receiving those solutions on the, on the back end from a regulation standpoint. So I think we've got a unique opportunity right now to, to really push forward with that. I would also add that while there is a big burden on farmers and, and people in the agriculture industry, it is unfortunate in my mind that we are always, it seems to be consistently fighting an uphill battle. And when there's no benefit of the doubt given, it makes a more abrasive type of conversation um, rather than kind of a unified, hey, we can all get around sustainability and looking to improve water quality, improve soil fertility, and, and just be better stewards of the wonderful, beautiful assets that exist today in our industry. But when you continue to hear the negatives or the bad apples get represented, it does make it even more difficult for a farmer to step out and try something new. Mm -hmm. uh, and the example I always point to is we continue to, in the state of Iowa, with the Des Moines Water Works lawsuit that now is kind of not, uh, we continue to get stuff in the media or comments made by Bill Stowe and others that just criticize the amount of farmers that are trying things versus looking at it from the other other angle of people are starting to now try things and the adoption rate is picking up. Maybe it's not as fast as any of us would like, but it is moving in the right direction. And so changing a lot of the negative mentality or approach or conversations that are out there in the media, especially the positive would help everybody accomplish what we want to do. Because I think we're all fighting for the same goal here. Right. Yeah. You know, the farmer's single greatest asset is, is the land, right? You know, you think about your family and your great-grandfather handing down the farm to you. You know, his goal was always to hand, I would, I, I'd never met him, obviously, but I would bet that his goal was to hand down a better piece of land than, than, he, than he inherited, right? And that'll be, that'll be your same goal as you have a, your family and hand down to the next generations. I really appreciate you joining us today, uh, but most importantly, I really appreciate the work you're doing and the difference that you're making, uh, not only just in Iowa, but really across the U.S. as you continue to experiment and educate. Well, thank you. I appreciate those kind words, and, and I would just continue and encourage you to keep doing what you're doing as well, giving a platform for the good stories to be told and for um, encouragement to be given to producers like myself who who maybe haven't started trying new things or have looked at stuff but haven't actually pulled the trigger. Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, I'll let you get back to work. I know it's a busy time of year, so uh, we really appreciate you, and, uh, and you have a wonderful day. Yep, thank you. Learn more about Scott and Longview Farms at longviewfarmsiowa.com. It's going to take new thinking, 
new approaches, and a suite of practices and tools used across our nation's farming communities to help improve the quality of our waterways and the health of our soils. But one of the things we love about farmers is that they continue to adapt. Farmers inherently know what it means to be sustainable. They're living it every day. They've been stewards of the land and water since the beginning of time, and they realize that they must be sustainable and profitable if they plan to stay in business and pass on a healthy operation to the next generation. Well, we all could be doing more. We can always improve. There are a multitude of learning opportunities when it comes to conservation alongside growing a strong crop. We've talked a lot in this podcast about the management decisions that deliver a return to our bottom lines and the environment. There's what might be considered the low-hanging fruit, like changes to how we implement the four R's of nutrient management for more efficient fertilizer applications. Then there are more complex changes, like adopting a new strategy for tillage or investing in new equipment, like a cover crop planter. And then taking measurements and metrics from those changes to understand the impact they have on farm is just as important for what it means on acre, in your wallet, and downstream in our communities. We're doing the same thing, working with our retailer partners and their farmer customers to collect data on field trials and performance. It's the proof of what we believe, and it informs and encourages us that we're doing the right thing. After the many trips to the elevator are finished and the combines are put away, you can stay in touch with us this winter by tweeting us at Verdesian or dropping us a note at groundwork at vlsci.com. So our ending season one of the podcast is Harvest Comes to a Close. But come next spring, we'll be back in action about the time farmers are returning to their fields for planting. Thank you for listening.